0: Hey everybody, it's Allie and welcome to our YNR chat for Sunday, March 15th, 2015. It's time, it's time for Adam to reveal himself. This needs to be over from a storyline perspective and from Adam's perspective, I I was so surprised this week that Sage offered him a way out of the sham marriage for her own reasons, of course, but Adam didn't take it. Do you remember how uh, enraged he was at her to find out that he was locked into this marriage, it would make complete sense for him to jump at the chance to get away from it. It would allow him to appear single and possibly woo away Chelsea. But when Sage says, I'm going to file for divorce, I, I want to be done with this marriage, he stops her. And he, you know, he he, he uh, pretty much says that he wants to get the money he, he said, you know, money makes things easier. So let's keep up this ruse. But money is not the end game here. Chelsea is the end game. So I'm confused by why he wouldn't jump on that at all. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Adam really needs to move forward with this plan. I, I loved, by the way, seeing... Sage kind of one-up him. She knows exactly what his game is, and she's got a motive all on her own now that has nothing to do with money. In fact, she's completely ready to call the estate planner and 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 have this all be over with, and Adam is just so aggressive with her, and she says, you know what, I'll go along with this little planner? no it was the estate planner showed up at a meeting or something and she said I'm gonna go along with this plan for a little bit longer but guess what bub if you continue to treat me like this I will file for a divorce and we will be done with this charade I loved that she was quite proud of herself in that moment and it's good to see someone who's actually able to put Adam in his place. I have started to feel throughout this process that Adam is is feeling like he doesn't have a plan. This is probably the first time that I can recall of since knowing Adam's character that he actually seems like he doesn't know what to do. And any plan that he might have had has long since gone off the rails because he's in constant reaction mode. Billy and Chelsea are getting engaged. There's another man getting ready to walk in and and steal in his mind his family, his his wife, his son, and he's content to just stand back and be married to Sage for some money? What's the plan here? It's getting dicey. Every moment that goes along, he's having a harder time hiding who he is, understandably, of course. You add a little bit of alcohol into the mix. Billy and Chelsea have this engagement party, which, by the way, I was Completely shocked as well that Billy would ask Adam to or excuse me, Gabriel. Sorry, I that's the most reason I want this to be over, so I can stop having to go back and forth between Adam and Gabriel. Oh, what should I call him right now? <laughs> we need this to be over so I can just have it easy and just call him Adam. But I was shocked that Billy would ask Gabriel to be his best man. Yes, he saved your life, but Jack? (laughs) Your brother? Uh, that seems like it would be a little bit more of a logical choice, but no, it just adds more discomfort into this this entirely dysfunctional relationship of Chelsea and Billy and 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 Gabriel and Sage living together in Jack's house while Jack knows the truth. By the way, don't think that that truth is not going to come out and come back on Jack in every single way. Billy's going to be mad at him. Phyllis is going to be mad at him. Everyone is going Hate Jack for knowing the secret and not telling everyone. And I'm worried that, or actually, no, I'm excited for that it's gonna come out sooner rather than later. Chelsea and Billy are having this engagement party, which Adam is wandering around drunkenly, at making comments. He makes comments left and right to indicate that he's not happy with the fact that they're getting engaged. Yet Billy would welcome him into his home, welcome him into to being his best man. He's invi- they're invited to this engagement party, and he, and Adam is surly. Gabriel is surly. There's so many little underhanded remarks. Forget the fact that he's leering at Chelsea the entire time, although I can't blame him because the dress. Oh, did you see Chelsea's dress at that engagement party? It had to be perfect because for me to continue to, um, believe that she's a designer and all that. The dress had to be smashing. This is her moment. She she should have the best uh, engagement party dress, wedding dress, everything on the show if she's the talented, cr- hugely creative designer of the show and it delivered. Did you see that beautiful dress? It was white with these little pink, um, like maybe floral uh, detailing on it. It was just so beautiful. I would love to know more about that dress too. I need to look that up because it was sp- Stunning and Adam is drooling like his tongue is (laughs) hanging out at the engagement party. It was so awkward. Of course, it makes for good drama, but I'm getting to the point a little bit where I'm I'm losing the story and I'm losing the motivation because it's gone on for so long. It needs to be concluded. I thought Maybe Adam, the, the cliffhanger of Friday's show was Adam saying, I want to give a toast. You all have something. There's something that you all need to hear and we know, we know it ain't going to be it. I mean, there's a there's a slight possibility, I suppose, that he'll reveal his identity at the engagement party. But I think what's going to happen is Adam is going to reveal himself just at the very last moment. I think Billy and Chelsea are going to get through this engagement party, maybe a a little bit longer of an engagement. And I think Adam is going to try to play along, play along, play along for as long as he possibly can. And then he is going to reveal himself to her right before the wedding, which would, I hope that's kind of where it's going. I hope Billy and Chelsea have a short engagement and we get to the big reveal very, very soon. I'm waiting for it. I am wanting it. I'm ready for it. Aren't we all ready for it? Ugh, the Austin storyline. I'm I'm struggling with this one too, to be completely honest with you, because it's so twisting and turning and there's so many little different clues and elements and who could it be? It could be any one of us. Maybe it's someone on the outside. I don't know what to think anymore. I'm kind of, I can't really speculate too much. I just sort of have to watch it all unfold. I um, had a voicemail from Gary in the beginning of the week, and he reminded me of something that I, I, I wish was going on right now. Like, you know who would really, really have been able to, to get to the bottom of this whole who killed Austin mess? Detective Harding. Where did that guy go? Remember, he had that sort of building a little bit of tension with Abby. They had that interesting, weird relationship where they're sort of opposite to track kind of thing. So that would have been a little more interesting to throw that into the mix but so I'm kind of wishing it was um maybe the detective Harding in the role that Stitch is playing now because uh, it seems like everybody wants to believe Abby did it but she didn't and I don't know I guess the Abby Stitch relationship has its own interesting dynamic as well so I suppose I'm gonna have to just go along with whatever they're giving me I I I I have to be 100% honest I was so into this storyline the very first week that it unfolded and now I'm just struggling with it it just feels long and like there's no end in sight and I don't have you know any any real well I have a theory but it all um, my theory makes everything that we're going through just feel moot and so it's hard to really get into to it but summer does begin to have flashbacks of of what happened on Valentine's night and she remembers seeing Abby and Austin kissing at the party. Furthermore, she remembers confronting them about what was going on, but most importantly remembers a, a moment of dropping the bookend on the floor while looking into Austin's eyes. He's still very much alive, leading her to the conclusion that she couldn't possibly have killed Austin. So now Summers ruled out, although I don't know why she would remember putting the bloody bookend on under the couch cushion if if she never hit him with it. Or, I don't know, I guess she could have been covering up for somebody. And, of course, it's all everybody's wanting to look at Kyle and she's the only one who's protecting him. But they didn't make Kyle kill Austin. That's why, that's the thing. It's like every time there's a soap opera murder mystery... I struggle with really getting into it because I know that they always have to make the main characters, the su- the main suspects, and it's never the main characters. They're never going to have done it. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Um, it's just it's a little bit convoluted. The, the s- development in this story that is most interesting, I think, and which sort of goes along with what I think my ultimate theory is, Stitch is talking to Abby. Abby's doing the walk of shame through the Jabot halls. Everybody's talking about her. She had a very nice heart-to-heart conversation with her mother where Ashley revealed, "Hey, I'm I've been the other woman too, so I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to be here to support you." She's Abby's finding support in her mom and Victoria, but everyone else is so suspicious of her. She feels awful and she has a little run-in with Stitch. And Stitch is trying he he wants to give Abby the benefit of the doubt despite the way that she's treated him and did not give him the benefit of the doubt when it looked like he was the one that killed his father. So there's a little bit of irony there that he's being so supportive of her. But Stitch reveals that there was a point when Austin came to Jabo and he was doing interviews with different employees and has is sort of getting the sense that the big documentary that Austin was working on behind the scenes was not quite benign that it was meant to be an expose on the big titans in town, the Genoa the Newmans and the Abbots and the corporate atmosphere and the rich folks. He was there or he was trying to expose the one percent. And this is news to Abby. She felt like she knew Austin in much the same way that everybody felt like they knew Austin. Summer felt like she knew Austin. Mariah felt like she knew Austin. And maybe the relationship now with Abby was not a, 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 um, a, a, a two-sided thing. Maybe it was a one-sided thing. Maybe he didn't really love or care for Abby at all. Maybe he was playing her in order to get information from her about her family so that he could make his documentary. Uh, So uh, it's it's insult to injury for everyone. Uh, Summer or excuse me, Abby goes to the cabin to to find Summer actually at her mother's behest. You know, Summer's your niece. You need to find a way to mend this one way or the other. So Abby goes up to the cabin, finds uh, Summer and Summer didn't take it very well. Summer ended up smacking Abby saying, I will never forgive you again, more insult on on top of injury, more injury on top of insult on top of injury for Abby. She's destroyed her family. She's destroyed her relationship with Summer for a guy who was maybe only using her. And it really is the same case for Summer, too. I think ultimately maybe the two women will realize that they were both played against each other, maybe by the man. So I wonder if that's going to be the bridge for the family ultimately. But then there's this stupid, stupid (laughs) mystery element. Last week, somebody wrote on the mirror in the ca- in the curio cabinet or armoire, or whatever it was. I know what you did here. I know what happened here. They wrote it in lipstick. And then, oh, this week, Summer discovers her compact mirror has another I know what you did last summer message on it. It's so completely stupid. Um, I don't know why, but it really bothers me. Uh, the kids are the kids. <laughs> They're all perfectly well adults on their own, plus Kevin, who's like this middle-aged man, but his, he's funny throughout the process. I enjoy Kevin through this very much. He's hes uh, older than these kids, but he's, he's a good element in there. Um... So everybody's trying to figure out, Okay, well, wait a minute. If none of us could have killed Austin, then maybe it's somebody from the outside. And maybe if Austin was making this documentary, maybe somebody didn't want uh, that information out. Maybe that gives them a motive. Ugh, It's so roundabout to me. The kids are looking at Victor. They're looking at Jack. Who could have done it when Abby ends up? This is it's just it's it's just. Incidents after incidents happening, and none of it is adding up to good, solid story for me. Abby ends up with her head bashed in on in, the, on in the park, and it's just like, who cares? There's so many other things that have that have gone on. That's not even shocking to me at this point. She's well, whatever. It's another blood pack, another makeup job. It just doesn't feel lasting and impactful to me. But somebody has hit Abby over the head in the park, probably didn't intend to kill her because they left a message on her phone or something in lipstick that says, shut up or you're next. So the implication is that it is someone from the outside. Ugh, whatever. I don't know. I can't follow it. I got I got nothing for you at this point. I don't really know who did it. I have my own theory and I hope I honestly hope it's not correct. I think this is just one of those things you sort of just have to follow and go along with because what else are you going to (laughs) do? Do you have a theory? (laughs) Uh, If so, please tell me because I just don't know. Uh, Abby, Is in the hospital, of course she's fine, but she does let slip to stitch that Austin was killed. She specifically says, you know, or she indicates by her wording that Austin, that it wasn't an accident that he was killed, that it was deliberate. And Stitch is able to pull out uh, some all of the information from her, really. She confesses everything. Everything that's happened, she's told Stitch. She's completely in on it. And I don't know. I don't know if there's an implication that maybe... Stitch had something like he knows more than he's letting on. I don't know if he's just being a good guy. He invites Abby to stay with he and Victoria so that he can keep an eye on her and help her. I don't know. I wouldn't want Abby around my man right now. I know that's the last thing that's on her mind. But I almost wonder if Victoria is going to start to get jealous that Abby and Stitch have are developing a relationship. And obviously, Abby is the cheating kind. So I don't know if we're moving toward that relationship with Abby and Stitch. I don't know if I even care. <laughs> um at the very end of I guess no, it was the very beginning of Friday's show. It opened up with a very interesting first person sort of monologue of Austin's. He's looking in the camera presumably making trying to make this part of his documentary exposé, and he's saying the world is made up of two kinds of people. The people who step on others to get what they want, and the people who get stepped on. This is the story of... Genoa City. This is the story of these types of people, these types of families, half families, half corporate entities, uh, very uh, painting this this very seedy picture of it all. and i I just think that. What we're seeing here, I mean, my overarching theory in all of this is that Austin is someone who's deeply disturbed. He was never the reformed good guy that we thought he was, obviously. So, when you know after the Avery thing happened, maybe he did at first have some genuine feelings for Summer. I think he probably did, but little by little, maybe all of that started to unravel. He started to see things around him that he didn't like. He saw an opportunity to enact or put some put his darkness somewhere upon this family, I suppose. And so he started doing this documentary. But I think that the documentary is ongoing. I think this is. Everything. Everything that's unfolding now is part of Austin's documentary. I think he is still behind the scenes, filming these people, orchestrating this at every step along the way. We know he's a dark guy. Yeah, he could have whacked Abby over that. I think Austin's capable of all of this. I think he's got his camera eye on how this is folding out or unfolding now. And I think that's going to be the tie in and I don't know, maybe the end of his documentary. He's saying, look at these rich, perfect One percent people. Oh, you think they're so good and they've got so much? Look at how they lie. Look at how they cheat. Look at how they steal. And I've got it all on film. Christine and Paul are struggling so much to make sense of what has happened. Christine has lost their baby. It was traumatic. And she felt a sense of disconnection from Paul prior to when she lost the baby and despite the fact that he's trying so hard to be there for her to to reconnect and stay connected with her I think she may have already pulled away I think that unfortunately this may be the beginning of the end of their relationship I don't know if they're going to be able to recover from this I hope that they are I think that Both of them are doing their best to deal with the loss and the pain and what's happened in their own way. Christine is moving full speed ahead on the case against Phyllis. There's no baby now. So there's no stress that she needs to be worried about now. So there's no reason that she uh, can't just go ahead and, and prosecute Phyllis. For one thing, it's it's a way to fill the space. It's something else to think about other than what's happened to her. She goes right back to the hospital. I mean, fresh out of the hospital goes to work to bump up Phyllis's court case. This is what she's focused on. It says a lot about her frame of mind. And after she does this, she goes to her and Paul. Paul actually gets her to break away from the office and go out to eat at the athletic club. And she sees Phyllis is there. And Christine rushes over to Phyllis and it, there's just this crazy confrontation where Chris is telling her you're going to pay for what you did. It's clear that Christine has taken all of the rage for everything that's happened to her in her life, really. And she's funneling it right on to Phyllis. Phyllis is the target. And the look in Christine's eyes during this confrontation, I don't think I've ever seen it. There was a desperation and an intensity and and a darkness that I don't think I've really ever seen from our perfect little cricket. I mean, she's she's been intense before, but not in this way. There was just something so, dark about it and she's just really really she had crazy eye (laughs) she had crazy eye focusing in on on Phyllis with those laser crazy eyes and Phyllis is kind of taken aback Christine is saying, you're going to jail and you want to know why? Because I have a key witness who's going to testify to all of this, just as Kelly is at the athletic club as well. She comes up into the scene and and Christine says, yes, that's right. Kelly is my eyewitness. She's going to reveal everything. And Kelly, of course, says, no, no, no. Actually, there's not going to be any trial because I'm here to confirm confess every it was all me. Phyllis did nothing wrong. I'm the one that was responsible for all of it. I poisoned myself and it was all a ploy to get Jack back. I just wanted to get Phyllis away from him so that I could have him. And it's just like coming out of the blue, Christine is realizing that the one thing she had to focus on is, is now going away because Kelly's. Account of the story is so convincing. I mean, did you see Kelly's face? She was really, really uh, scared, and um, her voice was really choppy, and she seemed like her she was almost short on breath, a little bit struggling to get her words out. And it was completely convincing. And Christine's looking at her, realizing that all of all of this is is going away. Or you know, is there why? Why are you you know, doing this? Is there any? Is somebody blackmailing you? Why would you do this? Uh, Is somebody uh, blackmailing you? And then there's like this slow look from Jack (laughs) back to the table where Victor is sitting watching this entire thing unfold. Jack realizes, oh, Kelly's recanting her testimony because Victor's gotten to her. Victor was so sure that nothing would happen to Phyllis and that's exactly why. That was his plan. And I tell you, I feel a little blurry about what the real truth is, and maybe that's intentionally so. And maybe you can tell me how you felt about it. Do you think that Kelly was being honest? Did Victor convince Kelly to tell the truth about what happened with Villis and the poisoning and all of that crazy junk that was going on? Or did he convince her to lie? I don't know if that's ever going to really be resolved, where either one of these two women is is truly crazy. Either Kelly poisoned herself, and that is messed up, or Phyllis actually poisoned Kelly, and Phyllis is not better. Phyllis is not as, as sane as she wants everyone to believe. There's something still very, very wrong with her, and I don't know what scenario uh, is is, is going to end up being the truth, but It was clear in that moment that Jack was very uncomfortable with what was going on. Uh, There became another fight between Phyllis and Kelly. Phyllis realizing, yeah, she did set me up, and now she's admitting it, and I can't believe she would do that. I'll really kill you this time, which was an interesting statement to make in front of the cops and the DA, but all right. Um, But Jack is trying to be supportive of Phyllis, but you could tell he was kind of trying to be supportive of Kelly, too. He's looking at her and telling her, don't say anymore. You don't have a lawyer. Uh, This seems wrong. And I think that Jack didn't feel entirely comfortable with Kelly getting punished because he knows ultimately, too, that this is his fault anything that happened, all of this right now, it's your fault, Jack. You're the the catalyst. So and Kelly said it right there. Like I did it because uh, our relationship ended and Jack did dog her. He dogged her. So he knows he's guilty of doing that. But plus, I think Vic, er, Jack does not appreciate the fact that Kelly, this woman who he used to have very real feelings for, was a pawn in Victor's game. I think it really bothers him that, yeah, Victor helped Phyllis, but the ends don't necessarily justify the means. And if Victor's capable of this, then maybe our friendship, quote unquote, is, is not really real. And uh, there's just more to the story, which I, I will say <sighs> that, what was it? Monday show opened up with Victor in the confessional yet again and he it, it really bothered me he he has this speech where he says something like uh, this is a war that's been, waged for ages. It's an age-old war. And and, and and it was just, it was very serious. He's telling whoever's in the other side of that booth that he is going to destroy Jack Abbott. Jack Abbott will be left with nothing, and you just do as you're told. But it was so severe and also so dark, and I just thought, whoa, this is so unnecessary. Why is it a war? I, I'm, I, you're not Optimus Prime. Jack is not a Decepticon. This does not need to be a war between two factions. It's it's stupid. I liked vi- the Victor and Jack rivalry where they're in the hospital room together, where it's lighthearted, where, yeah, I don't like you. I think you're, you know, I think you're a spoiled brat or I think you're um, a, a maniacal, egomaniac, you know, jackass. But I, I, at the end of the day, we are connected by our families and maybe we're not that different. So I'll save your life or, or whatever. I want to believe that there's some common ground there somewhere. And that speech of Victor's was just so um, it was just too much. It was too heavy. So I don't know if you guys felt like that, but. Um, I don't know. I I it was weird but effective. Um (laughs) Victor was able to get all of the charges dropped against uh against Phyllis and oh my gosh, (sighs) Kelly got held down to the station and questioned, and her story held so much water that Paul did have to drop the charges. Christine hadn't even cut off her hospital bracelet. By the time that happened, she was still wearing her hospital bracelet and she took a moment to cut it off. Oh, what a sad scene. I think it's another layer of of her feeling betrayed by Paul because he believed Kelly and, and is taking away the one thing that Christine had to focus on. So, yes, um, Connor had called and left me a voicemail this past week and said that he felt cutting of that bracelet was a, a sort of a, a cutting of or a severing of the relationship that she has with Paul. And I think that might be very true. And I think we're also seeing fractions forming with Jack and Phyllis. Despite the fact that they reaffirmed their love this week and they got reengaged and it was wonderful. Jack pledged his love to her and you know said, "We will do this dance, but we will always be in love. We you know, we will always be us." And Phyllis and Jack got reengaged and it was an absolutely beautiful scene, but I think there are layers of doubt there. I think that what we're going to see I mean, you know, I just said it last week, the the person in the other end of that confessional is a Jack lookalike. I think Victor's whole plan here is to destroy anything that Jack loves to break up his life. Jack is going to be on the surface with Phyllis. But Phyllis has that seed of doubt in her mind that Jack was kind of defending Kelly when all of that came out. So she's still got in her head, mm, I don't know, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe Jack still has feelings for Kelly. And what we're going to see, I think, is Jack on the surface being totally committed to Phyllis. And then we're going to see the Jack lookalike wandering around, all of a sudden being real helpful to Kelly. It's it's it feels obvious to me. I mean, probably follow up scenes that we're going to see are Jack going to visit Kelly in jail and being there for her. And maybe real Jack is is having some level of interest and some level of help for her. But duplicate Jack is going to be really in there driving that home. And it's going to drive the wedge between Jack and Phyllis. Neil feels so guilty about what he's done that uh, Nikki was trying to help him and he caused this car accident, that he caused the car to hit Christine, that he caused Christine to lose the baby. He's just absolutely soaked in guilt but not enough to stop drinking. He's also soaked in liquor. That's the surprising part to me that he wouldn't have been sobered up from that. I thought that would have been maybe the perfect opportunity for him to kind of get his act together, but I in the you know in the meantime though, I I will say I think that uh Christoph St. John is so good. I, it is not easy, I'm sure, to pl- act drunk as, you know, when you're not. I mean, I think that seeing him, I, I just, I, I've felt so colored by the previous version of Neil as a drunk back in the 90s that was so, it was just so long and it was so that I initially thought of seeing Neil drink again is just going to be more of that. But playing a drunk person cannot be easy and he's just nailing it. I think it would be uh, easy to to play drunk and have it come off as comical or just to not really work. I mean, try to think about it. Pretend to act drunk and you know it's going to come off like... And that's not how it's being played. Christophe St. John is just, it's so right. The dial is just the absolute slightest tick toward drunk. Like you almost... You don't. If you probably weren't smelling him, and if we didn't know, you almost maybe wouldn't know because he's just the. It's the misery. It's Neil's misery that plays above and beyond the drunk. But you know that the drunk's there, and it's just kind of swirling together in this beautiful delivery. Beautiful delivery. It's 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 carrying for me right now. I don't know what Neil's gonna do. He goes to Nikki and. Tells her, I can't keep this in anymore. I have to tell what has happened. And Nikki convinces him not to. She's very stern with him saying, you can't say anything to the police because not only is it going to destroy your life, but it's going to destroy my life too. At this point, we're kind of in the clear. If you go blabbing, I'm going to be going to jail too. We are in this together, buddy. We both lied. And that's the truth. In, in a way, Nikki is just as guilty at this point as Neil. Really? She lied about it. But I, I guess I sort of understand her need to protect him. Maybe she wishes someone had protected her from herself. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic and an interesting friendship. Victor walks in on uh, on Nikki and Neil's conversation, and he senses that something is off. He can tell that Neil is, has been drinking and can smell it on him. And after Neil leaves, Victor starts to question Nikki about the accident. And for the first time, Victor asks Nikki, well, What were you doing with Neil Winters? in the first place. And so Nikki sort of lets reveal a little bit that she knew he was drinking and she was trying to take him to a meeting. But, you know, there's nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, it's everything else is exactly how I said it. The Christine ran out into the middle of the road and I swerved and hit her. But Victor's not, he's just not entirely buying it. I think at this point he can sense that she's lying. And there's no good reason for it, though. There's no good reason for her to lie to Victor. It's just another barrier in their relationship. It's, you know, that Nikki would be furious, furious with Victor for keeping this secret from her. Yet she's keeping a secret. I mean, it's always a promise of no more secrets, and then that's what they do. Keeping secrets is a part of the fabric of their relationship, it is woven in. (laughs) so let's just remember that the next time Nikki's like you promise no more secrets to Victor you just remember that Nikki lies too I did I did appreciate the scene where he's like alright you know you can tell he doesn't believe her but he goes to leave the house and he says alright I'm leaving but you know what I had all the booze removed from the house so don't even think about it which was real backhanded you know it was real like I don't trust you. I know you've been drinking, and I frankly know you're lying. So just so you know, I've had all the booze removed from the house. Uh, It just, it seemed it just seemed like backhanded to me. I don't know. Something about that comment really hit home. Gina had called into my voicemail and left a comment that said, uh, about time. Who lives with an alcoholic and keeps liquor around? I never really thought of that, uh, but it's so true. Why didn't he have the liquor removed before if Nikki's an alcoholic? There was this scene between Nick and Dylan later in the week where they were talking about Nikki's alcoholism and even Nick knew that my mother's an alcoholic and it's a daily struggle and once you are, you always are. So, why did Victor have alcohol in the house? Except for the fact that you know he's Victor Newman. If he wants a tequila, he's going to have it. He's not going to have it removed from the house for any other reason. <laughs> he deserves his tequila. He's Victor Newman. <laughs> Nikki can just live with it. She doesn't want to live it here. She can live somewhere else. <laughs> but yeah, so Victor goes to the club and he starts to question Neil. And you again, it was just really good drunk acting because Victor's just asking the questions in just the right way and Neil's so sloshed. He's so out of it, but he has to try to find a way to to not reveal the truth for his and for Nikki's sake. So um, he doesn't really let anything slip. But I, I did enjoy that that little scene because Victor and Neil used to have a lot of scenes together. I mean, Neil worked for Victor for a number of years, and we haven't seen that in a really long time. So it was kind of cool to see those two guys playing off of one another again. But it's, it, it you know, After being questioned by Victor, after talking to Nikki, stewing in his own scotch-soaked misery, Neil goes to leave the club and that was poetry, his scotch-soaked misery. (laughs) proud of myself on that one. But Neil goes to leave the club and he runs into Devon and doesn't want to have anything to do with Devon. Devon tries to help him, get him home, get him a cab. And Neil just explodes on him and says, I don't need your help. And something just he just says like, I killed a baby or something so just confessional. And Devon doesn't understand what the heck he's talking about. But Devon helps Neil get back home and Neil reveals everything that he was that he was in the car that he's the cause that he is the reason Christine lost her baby and that furthermore he wants to go to the police and confess everything so Neil's in the middle of saying all of this to Devon when over uh coming from one of the bedrooms is Hillary for the first time since her big character twist and I'll put that in quotes Hillary is coming out of the bedroom with her Uh, suitcase and she's overhearing all of this and she's wondering what the heck is going on. It's obviously something intense and it's obviously her surveying the damage, whether it was intentional or not. And I think probably not, but she's, you know, kind of taking a moment to take in what she's done and what the effect has been since the last time she saw these people. And she starts asking questions about what's going on. And Devon doesn't want to tell her. He, in fact, just gives her a wad of cash and tells her to get out, uh, which is his whole freaking problem is that he thinks he can buy everything, whatever he wants. And the only reason he wanted Hillary is because it was the one thing he couldn't buy. Thank you. But anyway, (laughs) He tries to send Hillary on her way, but she's not budging. She's still being her kind of evil-seeming self, which I love. I'm so into her right now. I am into her more than I've ever been into her. I can't wait to see more of her. Um, I I love any little bit that I get. I like seeing... I like the termed Hillary for some reason. I like believing that she was this evil genius all along. Uh, I don't think it's true because... Um, Devon, uh, she convinces him to tell her what happened. She's like, I'm Neil's wife. I'm going to find out anyway. And if you don't tell me, you know I'm going to find out. So Devon tells her what Neil has done. And she has this moment of the second she realizes what he said and the magnitude of the trouble that Neil could be in. She reaches out and puts her hand on Devon's chest and says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're going through that. And it was a little break in the act. It uh, to me seemed kind of clear. She's having a hard time keeping up with the I don't care about you Devon ruse. And furthermore I think she really cares about Neil. And even though it's not romantic, she was married to the man. He gave a lot to her. I think she does have real affection for both of these men. And it's getting, uh, you know, she was able to muster up uh, the ability to tell, you know, to send them both on their way while she was in the hospital. But I think it's getting harder and harder. My question is, did Devon sense it? Does he think that, you know, did did that little bitty interaction give him enough room to go in and poke around and and find out um, the truth about what her feelings really are? Joe is so underhanded to me. He made this big promise about how he was going to leave town. That was his Valentine's Day gift to Avery. And then he shows up at the coffee house to tell Dylan, "Eh, no, actually, I'm getting in a permanent place. And I just wanted to drop off this box at your place of business, not at Avery's house. I want to drop off this box (laughs) for Avery. You just give it to her. Just trust me. She's going to want to want what's inside. It was so strategic. It was so obvious. Avery gets there, opens up the box. It's a wedding dress um, that she says she's not getting rid of. I knew immediately it was a family dress, which it was. Um, It was her grandmother's dress, but it was the dress that she wore at their wedding. I don't know why he would have it in the first place, but she did have a very emotional connection to the dress. And I think, um, I think The fact that Joe had it must show how deep their relationship must have ran. I mean, it's one thing, I think, to go out and get a brand new dress for your wedding. And it's me and it's fresh and whatever. But when Avery married Joe, she wore her family dress. You know, that says something about who she was when she married the man. You know, she she wanted to bring in that element of history and honor. And maybe she saw that as, you know, a good luck for their relationship and this family that they would have in the generations to come. So it kind of I thought it was a little bit of an insight into her character. Um, But it clearly it, it made Dylan uncomfortable and jealous and he doesn't want to Uh, have her get rid of it or whatever, but he also still feels like Joe is this presence in their relationship that's never going to go away. And Avery let a little bit of her jealousy slip through too. She made some comment about Dylan's relationship with Sharon. So these are two people that are already fractured. Avery was at home having a nightmare, which Dylan walked in on. He, you know, she woke up and he asked her what the nightmare was about and she lied. She straight up made up some story about The the nightmare was about Phyllis when she later revealed that the nightmare was actually about him, that they I can't remember what it was, but it was some sort of metaphor for their relationship. And she's very afraid. She's very afraid that she is losing the one thing that should mean the most to her, that they're just little by little, you know, the hands are slipping away from each other. And that's exactly what is happening? That dress was a bad omen that unfortunately Dylan and Avery's wedding is never gonna happen. And it doesn't matter that Phyllis sat there, took the dress, threw it in the uh, fireplace, and burned it, unbeknownst to Avery, with a big old Cheshire Cat smile on her face. It doesn't matter. The die is cast, the dress is cast. Dylan and Avery, they're never going to make it to the altar. Thank you for showing me Michael this week, YNR. Um, I've been worried about him. I've been wondering about him. I felt like YNR brought up his cancer storyline. And then he's just gone from the landscape. And I want to, you know, I want to see Michael. I miss him. I love Michael Baldwin. So it was good to see him this week. He and Lauren are just returning from a chemotherapy treatment. And they're sitting at the athletic club having conversations that are real you know, I don't need somebody getting whacked over the head bloody every single week. I enjoyed just watching Michael and Lauren sitting at the dinner table, having real married couple conversations, thinking about, you know, what would our lives be like if one of us wasn't here? Have you ever thought about that? What if what if one of us outlived the other one? And that's a real thought. That's a real reality. When you're in a relationship with someone at some point, a long-term relationship, at some point you uh, realize that one of you is gonna be around after the other one's gone. And you have to conceptualize what that your life would be like or what your partner's life would be like. Would uh, he or she remarry? And what would that person be like? And what would their life be like? And you know, that's that to me is intimate. And um, maybe that's what the storyline was intended to do is to drive some kind of intimate conversations. And if so, that I think it really it really worked. Michael, he's still so worried about their sex life unnecessarily, I, I really think. He's he he is now in this part of the disease where he's going through treatment. He's very tired. He doesn't feel sexual Um, Yet at the same time, he sees what a beautiful, sexy, vibrant woman his wife is, and he probably in his heart wants so bad to have sex with her and to be intimate with her and to give her everything that she wants, but he can't, and it's created this insecurity. And Michael, her affair with Carmine is a really big sore spot for him still, He is the one problem that their relationship had. I mean, other than that, they've been pretty solid. The one thing that almost destroyed them was her looking at another man. And so I think in some ways it's justified that he, or no, not justified, understandable that that's what his concern is. He walks away to go to the bathroom and in the meantime, a waiter comes by and offers Lauren a drink and is clearly kind of flirting with her and as soon as the waiter goes away and they're alone, he really flips out on her and he's very, um, kind of accusatory. Like, I saw you looking at him. And she says, no, no. I, I, this is just he he was just wanted a tip or if he was flirting with me, I wasn't looking at him. And so I felt bad for her in that moment because she's almost always in this deficit where she can't get out of what she did. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter how much time passes. She called it ancient history. Yeah, right. It was like two years, one year probably ago. Um, remember back when we had that who killed Carmine storyline and he ended up being alive? Hmm. <sighs> wonder why I think that about Austin. Anyway, um, I think Lauren always feels like she's kind of trying to backpedal her way out of that, no matter how much time has passed, no matter how much she's reassured Michael. But at the same time, it's um, it's it's sad and beautiful at the same time. I think that Michael, he looks at his wife and he sees her. For it, for everything that she is, I think he looks at, I think Michael thinks every other man sees his wife the way he sees his wife, which is, it's just, that's, I find that both sad um, and very touching and endearing at the same time. Okay, you guys, this is week Two of Allie has to rush through Y in our chat because she has a family dinner. Um, I don't even like scheduling anything on Sunday. YR is Sunday and Sunday is YR, so I'm annoyed, but I have to go. I'm really sorry. Next week I'll be back in full force. Um, you can, in the meantime, leave me some comments. 309 588 4569 is the voicemail. 309 588 four, five, six, nine, or you can leave a comment on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Go to YRchat.com podcasts. You could go to iTunes, leave your comments there. Uh, I totally read and I totally love and appreciate all of your feedback. And, um, I am going to make it a point to, to read some comments, uh, next week for sure out loud. Uh, so you can hear all of the other theories and, and other good stuff that I get to, to, to experience on a weekly basis. So, (laughs) all right, I gotta get going, but I love you guys and I will see you next week. Bye.